you know, sending a winky face and saying, oh yeah, I got the other people to agree to no training. Like I'm very persuasive. You know, that, that's not what, what you want to see in a commercial airliner that you expect to deliver 10,000 of and you know, take billions of passengers on over the next 20 years. The Tesla Q podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended for and should not be used as financial, investment, or trading advice. Research associated with fiscal decisions should be conducted elsewhere. The host of the show possesses no license or credentials to warrant accepting advice based on what is heard on the Tesla Q podcast. Additionally, even though the host and guests may hold positions in companies discussed on the show, they don't have insights into the next time step of the simulation. Therefore, do not make any financial decisions based on the contents of this podcast. Hello and welcome to episode number 49 of the Tesla Q podcast. This is being recorded on Saturday the 26th of October 2019 and I'm going to be joined today by a very special guest Elmer Fudd from Twitter and uh, before we get started with the interview as always if you want to become a contributor to the podcast you go to patreon.com slash Tesla Q podcast and with no further ado on this week that these shorties have been burned fairly severely if they had a, a short position and were not hedged, we're going to talk with Elmer. So welcome, Elmer. How are you? I'm good. Did uh, did you get burned this week by, by Elon? Honestly, no. And that's not to spike the ball on anybody who did, because I've certainly been there before. But as I think I did a decent job... Um, disclosing beforehand, you know, this quarter, I suspected there was a chance of some of some shenanigans, and you know, the price action from 180 to 220, and the price action from 220 to 250 just kind of made me a little bit uneasy. So, going into the earnings, I was certainly short biased because you know that's why I'm here, and I would have made more money had you know some fireworks to the disaster side happened, but. Thankfully, I was hedged with some shit calls, which, you know, unfortunately ended up covering the position to the downside. So um, I'm certainly not a genius in that move, because if I was, I would have made a lot more money rather than just not lost a ton of money. But thankfully, I made it out of this week relatively unscathed. Yeah, I myself did not make it fully unscathed, although I, I did not have any forced sells of any positions or anything. But but I on a mark to market basis, I had a bad week. No, I mean, I, I would, I would imagine that the majority of people are in that position and, you know, cheers to anyone who hedged it perfectly and managed to you know, c come out of getting, you know, a 30% positive move in the stock and having that add to their bottom line, but certainly not the outcome that a lot of people were looking for and hoping for. Yeah. I think, I think Ben had some calls and did pretty well. Ben shooter. Yeah. No, um, I, uh, you know, a lot of the, I think sometimes I reference the New York guys here. I'm friends with a couple of younger people who I didn't pre pre ask them to clear their names. So I'm not going to mention them, but you know, I think a lot of people had on some, what if Elon prints a great number type of uh, hedge position and those ended up, you know, at least covering the core position if they were core bearers. So yeah, uh, and you know, congrats to the people that made it happen, you know, pour one out for the people who, uh, might not have had one in place, but you know, I, as I can talk at length, perhaps later in this episode, you know, I, I'm kind of at the, you know, fool me once, fool me twice, fool me ten times stage of uh, this saga. So, you know, I, I was ready for the potential of something outrageous happening, and you know, some 
Not even that. The re- I mean, the results were somewhat outrageous, but the stock reaction was perhaps yeah. even, more, even more outrageous. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's not expected, but not totally unexpected at this point. Mm-hmm. I think I think the part that that hurts me most about having not been hedged is just the number of times where a 30% move to the downside would have been incredible for me. And I, and it hasn't happened when I've been positioned. So we, as I, as I think that you might've pointed out, you know, this move in earnings is essentially unprecedented from either a Tesla perspective or really any type of stock market move perspective in terms of, I think it was, you know, five Sigma the first day and another two and a half or three Sigma the second day. And, you know, I got a C in a college math class. So that doesn't mean a whole lot to me other than that I know that it's outrageous. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you know, I think options were pricing in, what, seven or eight percent the day before. So to have such a substantial yeah. move was certainly, uh, you know, of all sellers nightmare, I guess a hedger's um, relief to some extent, but uh, definitely unexpected. Yeah. And. I, I think it was like a twenty dollar expected move beforehand, and it ended up being like seventy three dollars from that was from Wednesday afternoon. Yeah, and the the five sigma and seven and a half or and two and a half sigma that was somebody else's tweet that I assumed was accurate. So don't fully quote that number. Um, I did actually get a question in uh, DM about that, and I wasn't able to answer it because it wasn't wasn't my math. But yeah, like I said, that that means nothing to me. But you know, I think I had. Uh, you know, 295 calls going into it, which were trading at, at virtually nothing. And, you know, yeah. they, I didn't, I, um, I didn't make money off of it, but you know, it, it covered the, you know, let's, let's see something bad come out of this type of bet. But, you know, $45, yeah. $45, 20% of the money. That's not, that's not something you really expect to pay off. So I'm not. Yeah. I, I, I didn't hedge cause I thought there was no way that they would do I thought there was no way that they could report numbers like that. And, and even if I had thought that I would have thought there was no way that the the stock would have reacted the way it did, but yeah. So, so that's, that's probably a good segue into, you know, the one point that I wanted to make, and this is by no means spiking the ball, but um, you know, just this is accountant Elmer coming in here to the extent I can, you know, try to offer some analysis or expertise. And, you know, I think, I've gotten into bull Elmer mode a couple of these past, probably the past six months, a couple of the past earnings releases in terms of talking about how I think there's a chance things might not be as gloomy as some people see. You know, I think last quarter I said that I thought margins would improve a little bit and they improved a little bit. I think this quarter I said that I thought margins would improve a little bit specifically because of the S and the X mm-hmm. having yeah. their... And I remember that you you mentioned that to me in person when we met up in Chicago and I wish that I had taken that more to heart, but... Yeah, well, well, so I was gonna qualify. I was gonna qualify that statement by saying, I definitely didn't get it all right. You know, I think that there was mm-hmm. about you know five hundred or so million dollars of delta between the median, you know, Tesla Q forecast of you know losing three or four hundred million dollars, mm-hmm. and, and them reporting whatever it was, a hundred or two hundred million dollars profit. And you know, I kind of, in my analysis bridged maybe $200 million of that in terms of, I thought that they'd get a hundred million dollars of gross margin off of the S and X. And I thought that they'd get a hundred off of service margins. And I think, you know, in actuality, the auto gross margin picture is fuzzy now, maybe a little mm-hmm. bit clearer after the 10 Q, probably not that much clearer overall. Um, and I think the service margin actual Delta was not even quite a hundred. I think it was like 60 or 70 or something like that. 
Um, and then there was you know, a, a big change in SGNA, which I hadn't really taken into the picture. And then there was, you know, a strange item in other income where mm -hmm. people are expecting, you know, negative $50 million from a, you know, foreign exchange loss that seemed pretty clear based on the fact that the U.S. dollar strengthened. And I think it was, you know, a $50 million loss or something like that last quarter. And then all of a sudden they reported, you know, a 50 or $100 million profit in that account this quarter. So there's, there's definitely some things that were mm -hmm. not foreseen by me, potentially unforeseeable by, you know, any analyst making a prediction. So I'm, I'm by no means saying that uh, I, you know, totally saw this coming because, like I said, I, I could have positioned myself a lot better. But I think there was a couple of things that were not totally out of the blue in terms of margins and in terms of service margins. But then there was a couple of things that are going to have to get drilled down into once the 10Q comes out and you know, seeing whether people can make more sense of that or whether it's just one of Elon's many black boxes. Yeah, and I think I think warranty reserves were one of the items that a lot of people are going to be looking at really closely when they first get their hands on the 10Q. Um, one one thing that'll be interesting to watch in the future is whether that whether maybe their lowering of how much they account for service, uh, well, and warranty reserves in the future, how much that comes home to roost uh, with maybe the speediness at which they're putting cars together now, which is maybe not as high quality as before but who knows yeah know. I, you know i we've all seen the disaster stories of you know the panel gaps coming off the line you know people whose computers crap out immediately but i fail to uh grasp the right idiom right now but you know there, there's legitimate problems but at the same time you know they're making seventy-five thousand model threes a quarter now and you know, 65 or 70,000 of them aren't going to have problems. And then, you know, mm -hmm. a few thousand of them are going to have big problems and a couple thousand of them are going to have medium problems. So, you know, I, I totally agree with the fact that, you know, the warranty reserve per car going down pretty steadily, I think over the past handful of quarters is not necessarily um, indicative of you know, what will be the actual warranty expense going forward. And it's mm -hmm. definitely not indicative of conservative accounting. But at the same time, you know, the one-off examples of these horror stories are to some extent not representative of, you know, the average owner's experience. So uh, it, it's definitely going to be a problem that might arise at some point. And I, I think the biggest problems that we're seeing now that are going to be legitimate problems are the paint problems and the rust problems. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I don't own a car, as I think I've talked about before. I've never owned my own car as an adult, so I, I have no idea what normal car ownership is like. But, you know, a car rusting out after a year or two, as we've seen with cars in the Northeast and Canada and Finland and other places like that, you know, that's not normal. You know, paint peeling off is not normal. So there's definitely going to be some serious repairs, but the majority of owners at this point, or maybe not majority, but a plurality of owners are in, you know, coastal California where rain is the most extreme weather they get. So mm -hmm. you know, that's their benefit when it comes to putting out things where, you know, it's not going to hold up to an Arctic winter, but it might hold up to a Bay Area winter of, you know, 20 days of rain and some puddles on the road. So, um, so I, I think, I think that that's a real, uh, you know, not issue, but, you know, thing that they'll have to deal with going forward. But I don't think that that's necessarily going to be a huge smoking gun in terms of, you know, it might be 50 or $100 million in each quarter where they could probably be reserving a little bit more if they were responsible or conservative, but it's not necessarily you know, a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar expense that they've been ignoring, 
unless you know there's some issue that becomes evident that we haven't seen yet. But as of right now, it kind of seems to be normal stuff. You know, these cars are kind of crappy overall. We're gonna have to patch them up, but you know, they'll they'll be able to make that happen as those things come in over time. As far as calling that fraud to say that they've not reserved enough for warranty, they they definitely have the the thing that they will would stand behind that set of actually having more real world data and so they are basing their updated reserves on real world data. So I'm I I definitely don't see anything that that could be called fraud related to that. So Yeah, you know, and that's just probably the most subjective accrual on any balance sheet because you know, I'm more familiar so I don't I don't want to talk too much about my background but um, I'm more familiar with private company accounting and, you know, if you're a private company, a private company, when it comes to something like a warranty reserve, you know, plenty of companies barely accrue any warranty reserve and just expense it as it's incurred. And, mm-hmm. you know, so, so like I said, I'm not that familiar with the best practice for public company, but to my knowledge, which could be incorrect. So don't quote, you know, don't put my feet to the fire on this, but, you know, I don't think that there's any particular gap guidance on this in terms of, you know, you need to have foreseeable warranty expenses over the next five years, you know, accrued at the time of sale. I think it's, you're supposed to kind of responsibly accrue with foreseeable expenses and, you know, not have surprises in the future based on normal course type of stuff. Obviously, if a company, any company, you know, Tesla or Ford or whatever has a recall, then all of a sudden you're going to have an expense that wasn't expected. But, you know, at the time of sale, you're probably supposed to accrue for what you think are going to be the servicing expenses, you know, over the life of the car. So if Tesla's under under accruing for a little bit, that's fine. But I would say that that's certainly, you know, one of the lesser um, sins in their financial statements. Indeed. I, I think the this last quarter's 4X thing is probably probably a little more shady than, than anything with warranties. Yeah, and, you know, honestly, I haven't dug into that a whole, a whole lot. I was at the bar with the couple New York Tesla guys that I mentioned uh, I think it was when we were walking to the bar that earnings came out and, you know, we were watching the stock price go up and you know, we, we were kind of ambivalent about it to some extent, because like I said, <laughs> kind of had the joke positions that en- ended up being okay in the long run, but it was just you know amazing to watch. But anyway, um, so the, the day that the uh, release came out, I didn't really get a chance to read the PDF. I caught up on that. Then, you know, we've had quite a bit of news over the past couple of days with the depositions and things like that coming out. So until the queue comes out, you know, there's not that much point in scrutinizing the headline numbers because not that Tesla's, Tesla's disclosures are anything to write home about, but at least with the benefit of disclosures, there might be a little bit of additional information on, you know, we decided to short the pound or, you know, this other crazy item was another income. But, you know, as of right now, it's kind of just a head scratcher that, you know, you hope to get a little more color on once once the 10Q comes out. Yes. And I just just had the thought, we've talked about all these other things. Haven't even mentioned the fact that revenues were down year over year. Like revenues down 8% overall, 12% for auto revenues, and the share price shot up 30%. That's, that, that is maybe the most insane part of this whole, whole thing. Yeah, no, so, so I, you know, if I didn't, you know, make a bigger stink about this. That's on me. Not that it would have mattered and not that I'm any type of, you know, per- person that deserves merit as to what they say. But 
so the overarching point is I think it's important to, you know, call yourself or call your buddies or whoever out on when you're wrong about something just to say I'm wrong. And you know, I think a lot of Tesla Q thought that that would, you know, that, that sort of break in the growth story in terms of declining revenue overall, declining auto revenue, you know, that would be the nail in the coffin that would, you know, re-rate the multiple or whatever the case was, or at least not uh, result in what we saw this week. But, you know, I never bought into that, not because I'm any type of genius, but, you know, as I can discuss perhaps a detail later, you know, I'm, I'm just at the point where as long, you know, I, I think that one of my best contributions, at least one of my personally favorite contributions to Twitter was, I think it was the five stooled diagram tweet about what matters to the Tesla stock price. And, you know, I don't think that, I don't think that year over year revenue growth was on that, but, you know, I think stability is the greatest concern and, you know, having pretty much stable revenue year over year is good enough. You know, obviously this thing is valued, you know, 10 or 20 times or a hundred times greater than any other automaker. And, you know, almost as a software company in terms of multiples of EBITDA or, you know, any way you look at it, but the, you know, the, the reason why the stock went down in my opinion uh, early this year is just because there was a couple factors that culminated in terms of both broken unit growth and, you know, broken sort of liquidity balance sheet factors. And yeah, yeah. at the, the same sheet, time. Yeah. And you know, the, the balance, quarter one. Yep. Yeah. There, there was kind of the, the perfect storm and, you know, I, I got sucked in there and I'll admit that I took a loss back then because, you know, I, I got aggressive and thought that that was the time to strike and it was not the time to strike. Um, but, you know, th this quarter, I, I didn't see that, you know, revenue going down by 5% or whatever is going to be uh, the straw that breaks the camel's back. You know, I, I didn't expect the profit, like I said, but I just thought that kind of stable results of, you know, we knew the volumes, you know, the unit sales two weeks ago or whatever. We knew that those were okay. Um, you know, whether they reported a $400 million loss or a $0 loss or apparently, you know, a surprise $200 million profit, I just thought that the, you know, revenue decline was going to be a non-factor. So I'm not, I'm not uh, trying to, you know, spike the ball on that, but, you know, I, I think that that it's, I, I mean, it, it has clearly been now, unfortunately, debunked as something that, you know, doesn't really be appear to be a factor in this equation, even though it should be considering their valuation, mm -hmm. but, you know, it just doesn't seem to be something that's going to move the needle. I, I did think that that was going to be a big factor and I was wrong. But I, I think the reason that it got overshadowed was the the reported profit and the positive cash flow that was reported and the fact that the, the cash balance increased, even though the increase in the cash balance apparently was basically equivalent to the increase in the total debt. So I was wrong. I, I definitely had bought into the fact that declining year-over-year -year revenue growth would be a big deal and and it wasn't with every every other number that they reported so yeah no i mean and and like i said i think it's a healthy thing to call yourself out call your peers out when you're wrong about something and like i've you know I, i've been wrong on this trade many times in the year and a half or so they've been involved with it so you know it's it's a learning experience for everyone so i, I think it's also kind of a matter of um you know poking this thing to figure out what is going to finally do it and you know we found one of the things that's not going to finally do it so 
it, it's been a painful lesson with the reaction this past week. But you know, now we know that that's probably not not going to be the trigger. You know, if it happens next now, quarter, or next year, or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I, I think it could have been a trigger if there had been a loss, a gap loss, and and some much worse cash flows that went along with it. But no, yeah, that I, wasn't I, the case. I, I, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, controlling the narrative, as I think I've been saying for a while, is pretty much what matters in this trade. And, you know, from a, you know, 3,000, 30,000 foot level, um, you know, there's the true believers and then there's the true anti-believers. And the true believers, so there's probably three categories, true believers, market participants, and anti-believers. Um, you know, true believers don't care. Anti-believers, to most extent, don't care. You know, at some point, people are going to intelligently exit the trade if it's not working out or if the thesis changed. And then the market participants, you know, as you said, there's enough good things to overshadow the bad things. And you know, I, I think I, I just brought up my five-legged stool because I really do love it so much. It's probably probably the best thing I've ever produced on Twitter. Go ahead, um, go ahead and go through that. It, so, so my my five-legged stool were unit sales profitability, the next shiny thing, liquidity, and regulatory issues. And, you know, none of those were a factor this quarter. So, and to some extent, it's almost like it grows extra legs if none of them are a factor. So, you know, unit sales were fine. Profitability was way better than expected. The next shiny thing, they still pumped on the call in terms of, you know, Elon's talking about the China factory. They had the Euro Giga factory in there, even though there's no way that they need any more automaking <laughs> capacity at this point. Mm -hmm. And you know, liquidity is fine, but you know, the the one point that I'll uh, I guess digress on or change a little bit here at the regulatory issues is, you know, I, I don't necessarily expect fireworks next week, but the depositions that came out this weekend have definitely been quite damning and are great to see, you know, a potential change in the narrative of this you know, blue skies of the past week in terms of. You know, this whole solar cert, this whole solar city acquisition you know everyone with a brain knew it was a scam from the get-go you know even the bankers in the deal basically knew that it was a scheme as you know a scam as you're reading these depositions so you know to some extent it's water under the bridge and I can uh, go further in on that point but um this is quite circular but yeah so the, the original point was that yeah you know earnings the you know, the stock reacts irrationally, number one, but to the extent that there's any rea any rational reaction is just that they basically hit the money on all of the core points that, in my opinion, drive the stock price in terms of, you know, sales were all right enough. Uh, profitability was out of the park. They still have a shiny thing to pump and liquidity is fine at this point. And, you know, there was no regulatory issues this past quarter. So there's kind of, kind of smooth sailing for them. So, you know, in my opinion, I you know don't want to be too predictable about the future, and I hope in the deepest part of my soul that you know on Sunday night some type of terrible Wall Street Journal expose drops that you know this entire thing is a sham and the stock opens at fifty dollars a share on Monday. But um, you know I, I don't think that there's going to be any regulatory issues uh, for quite some time. So I, I think that unfortunately we're kind of in the smooth sailing era for the next couple of you know months or quarter or two until. It gets to be winter again, and Tesla doesn't apparently sell any cars while it's snowing in coastal California. So, um, so yeah, I, you know, I, I don't want to say whether we're in a bad spot, but to some extent, I think that they're in the clear for a little bit here. Yeah, I I could definitely see that. Um, so 
are, are there any topics that you want to talk about before we start going to the Twitter sourced questions? Um, you know, so I don't, I don't know. Maybe so to, to quote Elon, well, this is, this is for you. This is for your potential benefit. This can be off the record if you want to, if you don't want to, if you don't want to leave it in, but uh, <laughs> you can leave it in if you want to, but uh, I think you've had a lot of guests in the past kind of tell like their like Tesla Q story. So mm-hmm. I think I, to- I think I told you that in person, but if you want to like ask me that question and want me to talk about that, I can sort of, you know, give the three minute summary of like why I'm here and like, you know, how my world has evolved over time. But if you think that that's like not valuable, then I won't do that. No, go ahead. So how did you become a Tesla Q Twitter person? Um, and why Elmer? Well, so I think I, I think what really got me attracted to it was, you know, Elon calling Montana's boss, and you know, I, in my job, you know, I, I've come to realize that management teams and management conduct is a very important part of a corporation's success, and the idea of a CEO of of a fifty billion dollar company, you know, calling another grown man's boss to try to get him fired over, you know, writing objectively true, accurate, or at least, you know, well-founded things about the, you know, the CEO's company. That just absolutely blew my mind. So I think at that point I had started to kind of follow uh, Tesla Q stuff indirectly, either on Reddit or um, Seeking Alpha. And, um, you know, I, I had kind of not had a chip on my shoulder about Tesla for a long time, but it had always seemed a little bit suspicious. I think I only become aware of it kind of after did the $30 to $200 a share run and figured, you know, at that point, the market cap at $200 a share might've only been 15 or $20 billion because I think that it's a lot fewer shares outstanding, but you know, back then they were also selling, I don't know, 50,000 cars a year or something like that. So the math just did not make any sense whatsoever. So I was vaguely aware of it, kind of always watching it, kind of always thinking that, you know, this thing doesn't make a lot of sense to me from a valuation perspective. And then I think that the um, culmination of events in 2018 of the, I believe, second quarter conference call when Elon freaked out on the analysts and then when he freaked out on Montana, um, that that would sort of brought me to Twitter. And then shortly thereafter, there was the 420 tweet, which is obviously, you know, one of the most unbelievable events in modern corporate history, I would argue. And, you know, that sort of cemented me as being a as a participant in you know this whole whatever this is so that's how i got here um and then you know to kind of discuss my personal tesla q journey and i feel like i'm an mlm salesman or something like that as i discussed that um you know it's as i mentioned before so yeah we'll start with the current and then we'll go backwards so as i mentioned you know this current earnings i was kind of just mostly on the sidelines, just ready for whatever Elon would bring. And I think I mentioned, you know, fool me once, fool me twice type of thing. But, you know, fool me once, last August or last fall, you know, Elon in hindsight said that they were essentially dead. And that, I think, in hindsight was operational in terms of they were pumping out the subpar quality cars, parking them in Lathrop as our shorty Air Force identified, and somehow they managed to patch them up. And for all we know, you know, those cars whose paints are now peeling off, you know, after a year of ownership way before they should be. But they did something where, you know, they, they did some alchemy where those cars were basically non-saleable. They had 
whatever, five or 10,000 cars sitting there. I have no idea. And then, you know, they did a quick patch job and were able to sell them and that's the end of the company. So, you know, that, that was the last fall's almost bankruptcy crisis. And then, you know, this spring, there was pretty much a liquidity crisis in terms of they were getting close to being out of money. I think that the March convert coming up. Um, and then, you know, all of a sudden there was, well, they got past the March converts and then, you know, there was the quick capital raise, capital raise after that. And, you know, people point out that it was a dirty capital raise, but to me, as a, you know, an average Joe, non-Wall Street guy, money is money. You know, if Tesla manages to get cash in their coffers, you know, I don't care if it's a GoFundMe or if it's, you know, a stock sale above the current market price or if it's the dirty converse deal they did. As long as they're able to raise money, that's not the position that, as a short, I want them to be in. So that was kind of the fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me type of thing in terms of, you know, after that, I kind of stepped away and, you know, somewhat from a monetary perspective, somewhat just from an emotional perspective in terms of, you know, I thought that he was on the ropes and, you know, never bit against Elon, which I joke about often on Twitter, but, you know, to some extent it's pretty true. So mm-hmm. I'm certain, I'm certainly so still in- far. Yeah. So, so, and that, and that's correct. So, so I don't want to, you know, paint an overly bullish picture here. I think I took the pool of the poll of whether I should be bull more bull elmer or bear elmer and you know the the honest answer is i'm sort of neutral observer elmer at this point in terms of you know we're, we're in the era of nothing matters you know we work almost pulled off a 50 billion ipo for a company that's worth eight billion dollars whatever a month or two later yeah if, um, if that yeah if, exactly. if it's worth eight billion yeah i mean it, it was probably worth pretty much zero except that softbank threw more money behind it so mm-hmm. you know it's it's just the type of thing where you know I, I've always got some type of, you know, federal raid position on just in case this goes the way that many people think it's going to go. But, you know, I, I've lost confidence that rational capital markets are going to re-rate this the way that it should be valued at any point in the immediate future. So, so I've just taken a little step back, but I'm still obviously rooting for the good guys here. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that that comes to fruition sooner rather than later, but you just never know. Did you start off as Elmer on Twitter? Honestly, didn't even know that FinTwit was a thing. It just wasn't part of my universe. And then I think that on Reddit, you know, most of the posts on, there, there's some type of anti-Tesla subreddit there. I think it's real Tesla or something mm-hmm. like that. I don't know and, that it's necessarily anti-Tesla, but. It, it, but it, it's at least objective Tesla. Yeah, but. yeah. But half the posts were, you know, linking to Tesla charts, tweets, or linking to, you know, some other Tesla Q guys tweets. Mark Spiegel then, or Montana yeah. or something. Yeah, and then I just realized that I could go straight to the horse's mouth and uh, join Twitter and figure out how it works to be involved in that atmosphere. Cool. So you ready to go into the, the Twitter questions? Sure. All right. And I'm going to – I'm just going to – Go to the thread that you posted this morning. I think it was this morning or late last night. And I'm not going to read them all. I'm not going to ask all, but, and it's going to be kind of random. So I'm going to start with what are the logistics of your plan to take the boomers to Gitmo? I mean, so that, that's quite, that's quite a silly, quite a silly question, but there's quite a few people who asked me to pontificate on this and, you know, I think that you heard my personal politics when we were in person last weekend. Um, so, so I would, you know, first, firstly, I would say that the boomers to get type of stuff 
is not satire. It's somewhat silly in the way that I might discuss some things, but for a realistic uh, point on the situation is, you know, we, you know, me and you, people our age, people a little bit, people a little bit older than us, we are the first American generation to be poorer than our parents, statistically speaking, not all of us, obviously. And America is not getting poorer collectively. America is still getting richer collectively. So that to me proves that there is some type of structural problem in society in terms of the rich are getting richer, the middle is not getting richer, the poor are not getting richer. You know, there, there are still plenty of poor, you know, th there is unlimited opportunity in America. And I say that with no um, sarcasm, you know, being able to bootstrap yourself is still a real, a real thing. And, you know, I live in New York. There's so many immigrants here who move here for the American dream. And that's still a real thing. But there, you know, the, I don't know if it's, you know, the decomposition of the middle class, but, you know, it, it's harder to be middle class or upper middle class now than it used to be. And in my opinion, that is, or not even in my opinion, the, the statistics back up that's simply because the rich are getting richer. So, you know, I think that there's room to give on the, you know, wealthy, wealthy side of the spectrum. And, you know, to, to some extent, I'm heartened by the fact that in our society, there seem to have been some type of uh, movements towards that by large companies. So for example, you know, Walmart, I think three or four years ago, got called out on the fact that, you know, all of their employees are in food stamps and things like that. And they have brochures in the break rooms about how to sign up for food stamps and things like that. And since then, they've raised their minimum, minimum wage by a couple, you know, a handful of dollars an hour. And I'm sure that, you know, the starting wage Walmart associate is still not, you know, raking it in. But it's, it's nice that they've made an independent effort to improve their workers' conditions. But, you know, in, in my opinion, we're the richest country in the world. We're the richest country in the history of the world. And, you know, there's a lot more that can be given. We're the only Western country in the world that doesn't have social, that doesn't have, you know, guaranteed health care. There's people in our country that die, you know, by not being able to access health care appropriately, whether that means not being able to afford medicines, you know, not being able to afford regular care, not being able to afford, you know, a surgery or something like that. So, you know, I, I just think that there's an opportunity to make our country better in that type of way. So, you know, I... I, I was discussing this with somebody earlier today, and I don't necessarily expect people to buy into that worldview, but it's a worldview that I bought into, and I think it's a relatively reasonable one. But I, you know, I know that there's people out there, including a lot of pretty smart people in the anti-Tesla community, and you know they feel differently. So um, it is what it is. But that's sort of the you know my lens through which I look at the world at this point. Gotcha. Uh, next question that I'm going to ask is what is your process for selecting memes? And I'll <laughs> add to that. Do you do, do you make some memes or do you just find them all? What, and what's the, what's like the ratio for the memes when you ask Elon to do meme review? Well, so the, the, those are mostly from Instagram accounts and, uh, my biggest regret, <laughs> not my biggest regret, but one of my regrets in my position in Tesla Q is that. I sort of reveal the secret sauce of, you know, looking at this part of the financial statements every quarter or looking at this part of the message board. So in order for me to continue adding value to the community, I got to keep my meme sources somewhat secret, but I don't, I don't make too many of them myself, but I harvest them from various areas. Okay. 
Yeah, you don't don't want to give up the secret sauce. Uh, here's a question that I'm going to ask, but I it it may be a bit too in depth, and you may not have any any good answer to it. But what is what about a scenario analysis of the Solar City lawsuit? Do you have any thoughts on that, or is that? You no, know, so I, I I haven't followed that in depth, and uh, there's certainly some legal eagles in Tesla Q that are the right people to be reading their Twitter feed to do that. But I think I briefly referenced before the deposition, and you know. Like I said, I'm not a lawyer whatsoever, so I have no idea how depositions normally read in terms of, you know, there's some DMing stuff that comes out. But the, the one thing that I will talk about, I'll go on a little uh, side tangent on, is that in my opinion, and this was discussed uh, with some contradictory, contradictory opinions, I think mostly yesterday when I was not at my Twitter account, um, there was the particular email about it was an email to suppliers of Solar City's business asking them for changes in terms. And one of them, the, I think the top line was to Kyocera. And Kyocera noted that they couldn't change things because it would affect revenue, revenue recognition. And then every other line in it kind of just talked about payables and things like that. But, you know, so uh, I, I have, you know, one of my biggest conspiracy theories from last year was that you know the miracle of q318 was generated by tesla being able to solicit a retroactive rebate from panasonic for purchases over a long period of time and that that you know wasn't that much of a conspiracy theory because i think there was an email that leaked about that being an actual thing that tesla solicited um so in my opinion the solar the solar city deposition documents pretty much confirmed that so there was there was some you know, disagreement in terms of what the documents meant. But I think in the in the Kyocera column, they talked about revenue recognition being a prohibiting factor of them providing any type of concessions at that point. And, you know, revenue recognition occurs independent of when payment is going to be received. So, you know, if you were doing business with right now Venezuela, which is probably illegal, you, know, you wouldn't recognize revenue until you got paid because you're not sure that you're going to get paid. But for any normal counterparty, you recognize revenue at the time that goods or service goods or services are provided, um, and you know it, payment is reasonably assured. Is I think you know how the how the accounting pronouncement language works. But for you know a publicly traded going concern, you know that's payment is basically re reasonably assured as soon as you sign a contract. So. For Kyocera to talk about there being revenue recognition issues, to me, it meant that they were trying to claw back uh, amounts paid in terms of, you know, Kyocera sold them $100 million of goods and Tesla now wanted to pay them, you know, 95 or $90 million or something like that. So I think that that's, you know, some people have argued that's a smoking gun in and of itself in terms of potentially incorrect accounting and things like that. I don't I think. I think Elon Bachman was one of the accounts that was, yeah, I, I, hi I would, highlighting that section. I unfortunately, I unfortunately wouldn't uh, know what he says on Twitter these days. But, um, but you know, I so there, you know, there's some argument to be made that the accounting is potentially incorrect for that. But even if the accounting is not incorrect, I think it's just a smoking gun in terms of you know how Tesla's been juicing earnings basically over the past year. You know, Q3, 18. And potentially Q319. You know, like it, I think that there's probably less of that this quarter, but there might be some of it, as I think I mentioned earlier in the other income, you know, unexpected mm -hmm. earnings. Um, but you know, th that existing in the past certainly shows how Elon does business. And you know, 
honestly, for the libertarian brews out there, you know, hat tip to Elon. He's ruthless. Like, if he can go out there and get $100 million, $200 million back from suppliers after they've already provided it, you know, great for him. You know, not not great for the short position, but, you know, if, if you're going to be that alpha and able to make that happen, then, you know, his shareholders should applaud that. And that's that's what he's been apparently able to do. And and on that whole discussion of revenue recognition, revenue of all the the line items on financial statements, revenue is probably the most difficult to game. Like it's it's one of the most true lines, most absolute lines on a financial statement. And I I will point out that for quarter three of two thousand nineteen, the Tesla Q estimates for revenue were basically spot on. Like yeah pretty much nailed it so yep. yeah and you know the, the i would say that the biggest x factor in the top line that is impossible to know because it's elon being elon is you know the potential of fleet sales you know there's people who do a very good job of tracking so well, i mean sales in europe are almost an exact science at this point mm-hmm. uh, i think sales in the u.s are pretty close to being um, you know, we have good proxies for them. I think sales in China are the one market that matters that's still a black box. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to, to some extent, there seems to have been a little bit of goosing up sales of, you know, the, the research came in to say high 80s and then, you know, the numbers came in at mid to high 90s. So in terms of, in terms of units, there's a little bit of, you know, what's going on there. But in terms of dollars, once you get the units, it, it's pretty clear. So. Yeah, you know, that, that's something that other than the fleet sales, the potential fleet sales, I, I have no horse in that race in terms of whether or not they do them. I'm sure they do some of them and I'm sure they, you know, channel stuff into the Netherlands in front of, re, uh, you know, tax credit cutoffs and things like that. Um, but every every publicly traded company channels stuff. So that's not even unique to Tesla. But, you know, it's, it, yeah, I, to get back to your original point, you know, revenue is pretty discernible if you have a couple context clues, but the costs were clearly what were a surprise this quarter. And, you know, a surprise to me as well. I'm not, I'm not speaking from any authoritative position of, aha, I completely know it. You know, I, I might've been slightly closer on the cost side of things, but definitely not where things should go. Mm-hmm. All right. Next question. Are there any ways that you think Tesla, this whole Tesla saga will change the accounting profession? after it's all over? Um, I would probably say no at this point, but you know, you never know if it's going to blow up in a complete accounting fraud in terms of, you know, they've been selling 10,000 fake cars a quarter or something like that. But I, I don't believe that to be true. Um, you know, in, in terms of the games that we expect them to be playing in terms of, you know, booking a supplier rebate that might be, you know, just, uh, conjured up one, you know, at the end of one quarter. You know, it, I don't think any of those things are so egregious to take down the accounting profession. But I, what I will, what I will say is that, you know, growing up in the Midwest, you hear frequently, you know, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say something at all. So I'm not gonna, you know, go on a personal rant against Elon right now. But you know, there's there's clearly been elements of, you know, by the book securities industry fraud in this saga in terms of you know primarily the 420 takeover mm-hmm. 
secondarily the solar ser- solar city acquisition and then you know there's probably some ter- tertiary things beyond that so what i will say is that to some extent you know if there has well there has been some provable fraud at tesla if there is even more fraud underneath the surface i would hope that it crumbles rather than survives because 10 years from now you know there's going to be two outcomes it's either you know over the next two or three or four years you know tesla kind of you know not phase into obscurity but has some challenges and you know has to restructure or something like that but then you know survives as a company survives as a brand survives as america's premier electric car manufacturer and that's all good and then the other side of that equation is whether you know there there's no loss taken by tesla shareholders and elon and i mean i, I don't unless they figure out autonomous you know there's not going to be any exponential gain either but eventually there's going to be the same type of book written about there was at elon at paypal where i think it was his brother or his cousin who said um you know there was i think there was a quote in there about how there was a uh, capital raise coming and elon basically bluffed people into raising money and trying to drum up demand for it when they were really all out of money. The next might have been very early. Sorry, not PayPal. You're gonna have to, you're gonna have to leave some stuff in here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna restart. I'm gonna have to restart my speech here. So it was actually going back to the original start of the Tesla story, if I'm correct of, it was when I think the model S was rolling out and they were short on orders and um, they needed to raise some debt and Elon had you know, an idea to just drum up support in terms of kind of making either the private equity or venture guys just kind of ha- smell some blood in the water. And he made the demand seem in excess of what it was when in reality there was nothing behind the surface. And then, you know, he successfully raised debt and then they sold a lot of cars that quarter and the company went out to be great. So the, the two sides of the coin are, you know, either Elon was this guy who dreamt too big, flew too close to the sun, cut too many corners, personally got cut down, but still built this great company. Or Elon took every opportunity he had to position his company as well as possible, whether it was legal or illegal, whether he was committing fraud, whether he was, you know, operating lawfully. But at the end, he created this great company. So it was all worth it. And that second course of action will be harmful to not even the capital markets, but just society as a whole. Cause you know, I, I think there's kids now who look up to Elon and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, the bro lands rockets. Like I've, you know, he, he's an impressive figure in a lot of ways, but sometimes those people need to be taken down a notch in terms of you know, everyone, everyone's human. And, you know, he's done horrible things personally to, you know, people that I now know. And he's also just done, you know, bad things in terms of corporate governance and accounting and things like that. So, so I, I hope that they don't get out scot-free. Um, you know, I hope that there's some sort of check on the fact that they've operated fly by night, you know, for the past five years in terms of, you know, cutting every corner and just doing what they could do to kind of keep things going. And I think even in, there's a quote in, despo- in the deposition of Elon saying, like, it's a surprise that we're still here or something to that effect. You know, even, even he just knows that, they're pushing so hard and that this thing could collapse at any moment. And, you know, so I'm not going to say I respect Elon, but I respect the aspect of him that he just has such inertia behind him and has people 
behind him that also have the same inertia that he does whatever is necessary to just keep going and keep going. And, you know, whether it's breaking laws, whether it's slandering people, whether it's, you know, painting cars in a tent, whether it's <laughs> whatever, you know, he just, he just makes it happen. So, um, so to, to, so to some extent, I think for a lesson for society, I would like him to get, be taken down the peg, you know, but if that doesn't happen, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. And, you know, as we talked about, we're in the era of not a whole lot matters. So if he, you know, the, the SEC at this point clearly cares about jobs and capital more than it cares about the rule of law. So, you know, he's in a favorable, a favorable environment to pulling this off. And, um, you know, if he does not more credit to him, you know, I, I still think that's a bad thing overall, but it's, it's, it's the type of thing where it's almost a toss up at this point. And, you know, I, I'm not privy to any knowledge about what's going on proceedings or things like that. So I hope that you publish this on Monday and on Tuesday, you know, he's in jail for the most ridiculous thing in the entire world. But, uh, <laughs> you know, re- reading the tea leaves as a civilian, I just have little faith that there's going to be anything that is going to, you know, put this fire out anytime soon. Gotcha. All right, now for a, a silly question. What is your beverage of choice when you go skiing? Well, it depends on where I'm going skiing. So if I'm in Colorado, it's obviously Course Banquet. If I'm in Whistler, it's Koenigke. And there's only two places I really go skiing. I don't really go skiing in the Northeast. So meet up with a couple of bros last time I was in Colorado. And uh, this time around, I'll be sure to not miss them. So, but you know, ski. Having a beer at 10,000 feet is a different experience. So I look forward to a few more of those this winter, hopefully. <laughs> what, what was the second one you, you said? It, it's a British Columbian beer. It's one that I haven't heard of. It's pretty rare. It's pretty rare. It's a, it's a nice boutique shit beer. Koenigke. K-O-K-A-N-E-E Glacier Beer from Columbia Brewery. And it's rated... It's rated 66% on Beer Advocate. I think it's a pretty poor rating overall, but you know that's, that's what I'm all about. So maybe they use glacier water as the, the water the, for it, I guess? That's the only water that exists in British Columbia. I forgot to mention my other favorite beer. Actually, it's called Cold Snacks. And in the town of Breckenridge, that's the cheapest beer that exists. So I think they're made in Montana. So shout out to Montana. Shout out to the state of Montana. And uh, that's absolutely my favorite beer. But I looked at getting some imported to New York, and it was like a you know $50 shipping charge for 12 beers or something like that. So <laughs> that's absolutely not happening. But wow. that, that's, probably, that's probably my drink of choice when I'm skiing. Another question. How are you able to be on Twitter all the time and have a full-time job and a wife and read all these articles and trade and analyze statements and on and on and on, dot, 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 dot. So I'd like to think that I'm like my boy, Jim Cramer, and that I just get to do a lot of different things at the same time. <laughs> You're that's that's going to leave that question at. Did did he did he unblock you on Twitter? No, I'm still blocked. Oh, okay. Ah, that's too bad. What are your thoughts on Gen X? We know your thoughts on millennials and boomers. So what about Gen X? I answered this via Twitter, but um, you know, one, one of my very favorite people that I've met from Tesla Q Twitter is a Gen Xer and pretty much all of my bosses in my career have been Gen X people. So I have got no beef with them, but during the revolution, I hope that they side with us younger people rather than the older people. And then, you know, the, their future will be secured rather than impaired. <laughs> all right. Uh, what salary do you pay to the actress that you pretend is Mrs. Elmer? 
she she pays me. Okay. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. I I met Mrs. Elmer in person. She was a a very nice lady. So. Thank you. <laughs> How many prestigious automobile awards do you think the Model Y will win? Yeah. So the, so the Model Y is really interesting because you know. Obviously, the launch was a total sham, and I don't take full credit for that. But every once in a while, you know, Elon coincidentally posts something, quit as I tweet something, and I, I'm once again not taking credit for it. But I think I trolled him about the fact that Model Y was supposed to be coming at some point, and then it wasn't coming, and then I tweeted that, and then all of a sudden the Model Y launch, Model Y launch was happening next week. And the launch was, you know, the biggest farce since solar roof v1 in terms of just i think they had two cars up there one that people were allowed to drive in with the tiny back seat the other one was a clay model pretty much the exact same as the model three so you know to some extent i think that if i was if i was zach because i am zach they're gonna they're gonna launch the model y five-seater edition you know, on the prescribed timeline of, I think, early next year, they said on this conference call. And that's not hard to do because it's pretty much a Model 3 with maybe a few different body panels or whatever else. And I think that, I think that the seven-seater edition is going to be like a year. You know, right now, I think it's supposed to be, it might even supposed to be a year out at this point already. I don't know if it's 2021. I haven't looked at the Tesla website in quite some time. But I think they've already established that the seven-seater is coming later. So I think that Tesla has already kind of, shown their hand of yeah the seven seater is bullshit and it's not the same type of car but the five seater is basically just like you know a jacked up slightly large model three mm-hmm. um so you know i don't expect that to be a game changer in the overall equation i do expect that there's gonna be a lot of you know baggies own baggy owners not necessarily baggy shareholders who buy the model y because it's the newest thing so mm-hmm. i honestly think it's pretty smart from a tesla you know corporate perspective of they're going to get three or four Tesla household, you know, households who own three or four Teslas to buy a Model Y just because it's a Model Y when they already have two threes and S and an X in the stable just to buy one because it exists. Um, and, so, they'll, you know, and they'll be able to afford it after last week's share price rise. Exactly. Well, yeah. So I, that, that, that's a separate topic that I'll try to remind myself to return to. But so, so I think, I think that, I think, you know, the Y will cannibalize the three. They're pretty much the same car, but it'll also provide some incremental demand over the short to medium term of people who just want to own every Tesla model, want to own, you know, the slightly bigger Tesla model, whatever. Um, what was the point that I was just trying to return to? Um, the the affordability oh, yeah, of yeah, Tesla's yeah, for, yeah. Yeah, honest, honestly, that is not the nail in the coffin of the bearish thesis, but, you know, I think my original claim to fame or aspect that I added to Tesla Q was that I spent a lot of time reading the message boards and, you know, the shareholder and owner overlap, as everyone knows, is enormous. And, you know, there's so many people who are feeling the pain in the low 200s, even below 200. And there's some people now who have to be clothing. And I just, I haven't, I haven't looked recently out of being busy in my personal life, not, you know, avoiding it because I'd be happy to post some, you know, baggy victory things as well, because like I said, you got to take the pain and you get it. But, you know, there's people who probably have, you know, at least a few hundred thousand dollars in net worth, if not more tied up on this, um, you know, especially Tesla employees, but also just, rel- you know, 
Californian, Silicon Valley people, tech-oriented people, whatever. And you know, I, I think in the general economy, you know, people spend less money when housing prices go down and when stock market values go down. So these Tesla people, you know, well, housing prices are stable, so that's not relevant to this argument. But you know, they've gotten almost 100% richer in the past whatever three or four months since it hit maybe six months since it hit 180. So you know, there's people who were, were believers of 180 and you know holding on by the skin of their teeth, and now they got money to spend on a new car and they're going to support the mission. So. You know, I, I don't know what that knock-on effect is. I don't know if it's you know five thousand cars a quarter. I don't know if it's fifteen thousand cars a quarter, but that certainly can't hurt demand. So honestly, that is something that, in my opinion, should be considered in a bearish financial model. Of there are going to be more true believers with money to spend. You know, based on the current stock price, and you know, we'll see what it does over the next week, month, three months, six months. But you know, as of right now, there's a lot of people feeling quite flush. Mm-hmm. I think I think it was Hedgeye that actually talked about that some in some of their their whatever they put out reports yeah. or I'm I'm not a subscriber unfortunately but I, I think it was them that that did so here's a question from one of our favorite Gen X people there is a fine line between questionable and gray accounting and fraud financial shenanigans which I think is a book has examples of accounting tricks, which ones are legal and which ones are actual fraud. So I'll go back to an example that I think I'm somewhat familiar with and somewhat correct on, but you never know if I'm going to be wrong. So don't quote me on this, but talking about these Panasonic rebates and things like that, that I theorize happened last year. So a financial, a financial shenanigan is, when the letter went out last Q3, when Elon burned the shorts for the first time in, you know, August or September, you know, 22nd or whatever, saying, okay, Panasonic, we need some money back. And they got a check cut by, they theoretically got a check cut by, cut by Panasonic. That's a shenanigan in terms of if they got some money back there relating to multiple quarters of prior purchases, multiple years of prior purchases, whoever knows, and then book that benefit in that same quarter. You know, that's unrepresentative of Tesla's normal earning power in that quarter. But at the same time, that's not necessarily fraud because, you know, the, the biggest concept in accounting is matching expenses with revenue, but there's also a concept of certainty of those types of things. So Tesla didn't know until Q3 when Elon sent that email that they were going to get any theoretical rebates from Panasonic. So you know, th- there's no way to book something in a prior quarter or push it back to push it back to a prior quarter because it was not foreseeable. It was not something that was going to be achieved until it actually was. But at the same time, you know, that's shenanigans in terms of it's not representative of the actual financial performance in that quarter if the rebate relates to, you know, purchases over prior quarters, prior years, whatever. Where it goes into fraud is if, and this is just, you know, not even saying that they did this, but just theoretically, you know, if they on the last day of the quarter said, Hey, I think, you know, we can shortchange Panasonic by $200 million. You know, we spend billions of dollars within the year. They're just going to bend over and take it. You know, let's book this reduction to cost of goods sold and, you know, a credit on the other side. Let's just, let's just do that on our own. Like th- that's where it becomes fraud. You know, if you have, if you have a arm's length agreement, then that's, you know, a fine arrangement and whether it's, 
debatably out of period is the gray area where it becomes fraud is if you're kind of making those decisions on your own. So, you know, like a, there, there's few things that are night and day fraud and um, you know, most of it is that gray area. And it's just a matter of the Tesla has such awful corporate go- corporate governance. And I think that in the depositions that came out this week, there was some type of quote, I don't know if it was Elon, I don't know if it was one of his lieutenants, but they asked about disclosures and I think that the uh, counsel who was questioning him asked, you know, shouldn't this be disclosed? And the answerer said, no, you know, our attorney said that didn't need to be disclosed. Uh, so, you know, it, you know they're, they're clearly doing the bare minimum in terms of disclosures. Like, I, I think that my claim to fame in, in Tesla Q was pointing out that the AR disclosure in Q318 was completely abnormal. So I think the normal companies say that, you know, we had one customer that accounted for 21% of our accounts receivable. Tesla's disclosure said we had one you know counterparty that accounted for more than 10% of our accounts receivables and it's just you know i i've looked at literally thousands of audits at this point in my life and i had never seen that language in any point in my entire life so so tesla's tesla's disclosures are totally inadequate you know totally the bare minimum whether that's you know the gray area or fraudulent that's going to be a question for either the history books or you know trial a couple of years from now so I think I, I think I digress digress pretty far in there, uh, getting getting in some weeds on accounting. But um, you know, accounting accounting is can get quite creative, and um, you know that's that's not the way that it should be, but that's kind of the way it is. So you know, it, it provides opportunity for companies to sort of be able to change not not change things, but you know, report what they want to report what they want to report to some extent. Mm-hmm. All right. Another question. Do you think that arbitrarily defined, quote, generations are a good framework to consider policy, culture, et cetera? Or are you just trolling? I think we mostly covered this before, but, you know, it's not the arbitrary. It's not the arbitrarily defined generations. It's more of just, you know, the relatively young in America versus the relatively old in America. So, uh, and, and, you know, it's also the relatively rich in America versus the relatively poor in America. And I wouldn't say I'm relatively rich, but I'm I wouldn't say I'm relatively poor. You know, I'm I'm speaking as a proponent of people who are not not necessarily uh, exactly in my situation. Um, so no, I, I mean you know, B2G is kind of uh, oversimplification, but you know, we live in the world of hashtags and virality and things like that. So that's just a way to kind of encapsulate the feeling in a succinct way. Gotcha. All right. Back to your character of Elmer. Do you prefer duck season or rabbit season? I've never eaten either, actually. So uh, <laughs> so neither? Yeah, neither. All right. When are you coming to the West Coast to see what you've been missing? Pretty soon. Uh, so I, I've been blessed to meet a lot of the Tesla Q community, which probably isn't primarily based in New York, but there's plenty of people here in New York. I met a few people from the West Coast who have spent some time here. But when I go out there, there's certainly some more people to meet. So you know, I've got a couple of real life friends out there and uh, I'll be making my way out there eventually. But like I said, believe it or not, I do have a real job and I've got uh, other ski trips and things like that to plan around. So I'll make it out there eventually. All right. And I, I guess the next part will maybe be a whole segment, but I haven't asked any questions yet about Boeing or hashtag BA.D. I'm back. 
All right, we had to take a little break there after talking for a little more than an hour. Uh, during the break, I am just now noticing a new tweet, new couple of tweets from Tesla charts. And it looks like, based on the timing, that the Model 3 acceleration, the, the acceleration of the development of the Model 3 may have been related to Kimball Musk having a margin call in February of 2016. So... Something interesting to, to keep in mind. So no, I'm looking for, so, you know, like I said, I look forward to any sort of doom situation. And I think there's been so much damning evidence that has come out of this. And I personally haven't read the deposition, doc, deposition documents yet myself because I've been busy this weekend, but I plan to read all of it because I, I enjoy pretending to know what I'm doing when I'm reading these types of things, but mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's obviously a, you know, family enterprise in terms of running it to benefit the Musks and the Reeves. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's just, it, it's, I wouldn't say it's absolutely not par for the course, but you know, it, it's, it's now very out in the open that has been a family enterprise in terms of mm-hmm. it, they've run it to make sure that, they do not suffer any losses and they hopefully incur the gains. And, you know, I hope that there's things in that deposition that are enough of a smoking gun that, uh, you know, generate some tough questions for the Musks and the Reeves to have to attest to why they did things the way that it did. And, you know, the, the solar city merger. So I, I haven't seen the Kimball things. Um, but, you know, there was, I think I saw something earlier today about how, they did the solar city merger with absolutely no no diligence whatsoever, and like that is somewhat my area of familiarity, and that is just completely abnormal. You know, in a, in a public company transaction, diligence might be a little bit lighter than it would be in any other transaction, but doing it with no diligence is unheard of. Yeah, you know, and that just speaks to the fact that it was a family bailout, which everyone has known for years, mm-hmm. but hasn't mattered so far. So. You know, I dream that matters going forward. Um, I wouldn't make a financial bet on it mattering going forward, but it's nice that these documents are public so that the dirty laundry gets aired and, you know, people are at least able to point it out the the way that this happened. But like I said, you know, I'm unfortunate now of the belief that the inertia behind the success is more important than the shortcuts, the, you know, illegal things, the sketchy things, whatever that took to get them there. But, you know, who, who knows whether there's something that is too much to handle. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I appreciate the work that the hardworking members of Tesla Q are doing to reveal the problems, the problematic aspects of that transaction. And, you know, everything that's come out during this deposition and you know, one day maybe it'll all matter and i hope that day is sooner rather than later so you know cheer, cheers to the bros doing hard work and you know reckoning day and stuff mattering could not come soon enough mm-hmm. and um during the break i i was i was thinking about the episode and i i think for this one we're not going to do any bonus content we'll just release it all as a, a normal episode um so with that, the the topic that I think a lot of people were, were wanting to hear more about 
is Boeing and how you became the the de facto leader of the BAD hashtag BA.D uh, side of Twitter, which ultimately spawned uh, what I what I've attempted to help perpetuate as a new cash tag scheme to show when you think that a company is likely to be valued at a lower share price in the future than it is currently, but don't think that it's going to go bankrupt. So rather than adding a Q, add the dot D, which you and Ted Stein and maybe one or two other people I think helped start that. So yeah, yeah, I think I, that. So, so I, I start. I tried to figure out a cash tag because not out of you know self fame, not out of any type of notoriety, but it's really that you know the BA cash tag itself is just all you know chartists and day traders and things like that tagging fifty symbols in a tweet and talking about you know trades for tomorrow or whatever. So that like I, I took for granted how robust the Tesla Q information sphere was. And there's truly been nothing like it, at least in my personal experience of, you know, Tesla Q having all these people generating, generating insights from all types of different angles, whether it be legal, you know, accounting, operational, um, Tesla Q is amazing, you know, and then I'm happy to have contributed sometimes and, you know, been a part of it in the background at other times. Uh, so Boeing didn't have that. So, you know, my, my interest in Boeing started out, really just after the second crash, maybe a little bit after the first crash, but really after the second crash, just, you know, there's gotta be something wrong with this. And then, you know, drilling deeper into it, it's just an indictment of really to get a little bit communist again, late stage capitalism and, you know, corporate culture in America in 2019 of they did everything wrong to take shortcuts to build this plane. You know, basically for the uninitiated, Airbus came out with the Neo, which strapped on some larger engines, um, probably in, I guess, 2015 or 2016 or something like that. You know, they unveiled it in air show. Is that the A320 or 330? I, I think it's mostly the 320. Um, but, but so the Airbus plane has taller landing gear. So Airbus was able to basically strap on these new engines and not have any significant change to the planes, and they were good to go. And I think that there was an air show and they won a ton of orders from, I don't know if it was American or some sort of big carrier and Boeing all of a sudden shit their pants, pardon my French. Um, but, you know, so after that, Boeing at that time, from what I understand, was working on what's called the NMA. I think it's the new model aircraft that might not be the right acronym, but you know, Boeing was kind of working on a true replacement for the 737 at that point, but Boeing, uh, but Airbus had gotten you know, hundreds of orders for this new plane that kind of came out of nowhere and Ben was like, okay, we need to scramble. So they pretty much jerry-rigged bigger engines onto the 737, which is a 50-year-old airplane. You know, there, there's computers, you know, the sensor suite in that airplane is pretty much, you know, completely inadequate. The uh, computing power in that airplane is inadequate, but it's all to adhere to the original, not necessarily the original, but, you know, in-place certification standards. So, it's basically, you know, the equivalent, some extent of, you know, buying a 1970s car that doesn't have airbags, that, you know, doesn't have traffic awareness, anything like that. So, you know, Boeing reacted to this force in the commercial marketplace and got this plane out to market as quickly as possible. And as they were getting out to market, there were plenty of red flags raised by the engineering staff in terms of 
um, you know, first it was that it had different flying characteristics because of the bigger engines. And to do that, you know, to deal with that, they invented the MCAS, which I think is maneuvering, maneuvering characteristics. I don't know, probably avionics system. I should probably know that if I'm uh, the chair, the co-chairman of BAD. But anyway, the MCAS isn't something that's required to keep the plane in the sky, but rather it is to make the plane fly identically, theoretically, to the old 737s so that it could be certified under the prior certification certificate. So, you know, the, the whole premise of the MAX was that if you get it certified under the other other certificate, you don't require any additional pilot training. You know, Southwest had a clause in their purchase agreement that if similar training was required, they would discount their airplanes by like a million dollars each. Um, so, you know, it, it was basically what can we do to make this plane on paper be the same as the past one? And you know, the reality is obviously that it's not the same. And um, you know. The, the, the two crashes that happened are a true shame. The first one, you know, was theoretically preventable via different design and uh, marketing and, you know, deployment of the plane. The second one, in my opinion, is blood absolutely on Boeing and the FAA's hands. And there, it, that's shared. And, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the FAA takes the fall instead of Boeing based on a current, you know, societal climate. But, you know, so ab- after the first crash, Boeing and the FAA knew that the MCAS was a problem. And they got together and said that we think in the next 10 months, I believe is the correct um, evaluation. And, you know, if this is wrong, I'll rise in a tweet later. But Boeing and the FAA said that within the next 10 months, there will be another serious issue with the MCAS. And what do you know, five months later, there's another serious issue and a plane killed another 150 people. And that to me is, you know, the bottom of corporate culture, you know, saving a dollar for the benefit of the shareholders. And the most amazing thing to me, which I think I've harped on a million times on Twitter. So probably anyone who follows me has seen this is that after the second crash, Boeing CEO called up Donald Trump, who's his buddy and apparently said, let's keep this plane flying. You know, I think, I think that China was the first to ground it. I think that uh, the Europeans grounded after that. And then I think that Canada got a key piece of information from the second crash a few days later that, you know, had this MCAS triggering or something like that. They got that information grounded and shortly after the FAA actually grounded it. But, you know, Boeing, Boeing CEO did what he could to say, LL, nothing matters. Let's keep this plane in the air. And that to me is absolutely reprehensible, deplorable. You know, Elon like uh, I promised earlier, I wouldn't say bad things, but you know, Elon has done bad things about, you know, ruining or trying to ruin individuals' lives. You know, he's put autopilot, autopilot on the road that has caused, you know, a handful of deaths that we're aware of, maybe more, I, I don't know. But, you know, let's say, let's say Elon's killed five or 10 people. And let's say Elon's, you know, Elon's probably definitely a little bit more purposely nefarious, but you know, Boeing's CEO, in my opinion, has the blood of 150 people on his hands and would have had more had he gotten his way and kept his plane flying. Um, and, you know, they, and since then, it's been grounded for seven months and counting. So it's not like there was this little minute issue to work out. There was clearly big issues with the plane. So as the CEO of a company making this plane, you should have been aware of the fact that 
this isn't the most straightforward issue in the world. And, you know, since that's come out, there's been other issues with the plan in terms of, you know, there's no redundancy as the way that there should be. There's an issue with uh, computing power. There's an issue with the fact that kind of like the alternative control system might not be able to actually be used by the average pilot in terms of it uses, uh, requires a lot of physical force to do. So it's just ridiculous in terms of the fact that he wanted to keep this plane flying just to avoid a scandal when this is the biggest scandal in commercial aviation history for the most part. Um, so I think, I think that's the opening spiel. Uh, well, I'll, I'll go on for another minute or two. So it, it's, you know, when I really got involved in what was after that second crash and after that second crash, he was promising that, you know, it would be back in the air in like a month or two. And then I think the FAA found the secondary issues in terms of the computing power, in terms of, and I think it was actually the Europeans who raised some of the concerns in terms of, uh, I think it's the trim wheel that has to be manually cranked, which was a concern. Um, so the Europeans were one of the people who elevated key risks that went up the chain and you know prevent, prevent, prevented it from coming back right away. But since then, you know, it's been grounded for forever. Like Boeing CEOs promised it would be back in, you know, they, they intended to submit a fix at the end of September and have it being recertified, you know, prior to where we're talking right now. You know, as of the latest quarterly conference call, it clearly, they, they finally submitted, I think what's called like the final package, but they haven't done the test flight yet. And it's going to be like 30 days or 60 days of work before the test flight. And then after the test flight, there's another 60 days of work. So there's some chance that the FAA ungrounds it by the end of the year. And then Europeans and Canadians and, you know, other aviation authorities do it shortly thereafter. But you know, at, at every junction in this process, the MO has been to obscure, to, you know, promise rosy things. And for, America's premier manufacturing company, and I say that with no sarcasm, you know, it, it's just a shame that they're not able to like speak to reality of how difficult the situation is. And you, know, you start to see a little bit of it in terms of they fired the head of commercial airplanes, even though they should have fired this, the CEO instead of that. And Southwest's CEO said that on the record in terms of, you know, we had a great, we thought that the commercial CEO was a great guy and we kind of want to see the CEO go away. So you know, I haven't been following it long enough to know whether the CEO is kind of a difficult guy to work with or what the case may be. But, um, you know, it's, it's just there's going to be lingering effects. And th this last quarter, so there, my, my trade on that, as I think I've talked about on Twitter, kind of got messed up because on one hand, I got lucky by the Friday before earnings. Uh, mm -hmm. I was anticipating them releasing uh, pre-releasing uh, write down or some type of bad news on Thursday night because they did that the prior quarter. They did not do that. But then on Friday, there was an article that came out, came out about the fact that they provided these texts where test pilots, you know, recognized a problem with the MCAS system or the MCAS simulator system. And they disclosed that to the department of justice way back in, I think February before the second crash, but they did not report that to the FAA. So, you know, if they report that the FAA, who knows if the plane would have been ground immediately and another 150 people didn't have to die. I don't, you know, I don't know if that's something that would have happened or not, but the FAA was pretty pissed about that. So I think, you know, Boeing sold off, I think, you know, six or 7% one day and a couple more percent the next day based on that news. So after that, the earnings thesis, you know, kind of uh, 
was muted a little bit in terms of, you know, they, they reported, I think, worse than expected earnings. They didn't take a write down, which in my opinion was kind of the Tesla route of kicking the can down the road because every single airline who's doing airlines right now is, you know, reporting a bigger max related loss. You know, they're, they're not taking, you know, the airlines don't take charges. They're just saying that we would have made this much more money if the max is flying. And, you know, Southwest is at 450 million. I think Americans at 400 million or something like that. And they each have like 30 planes and the max global free global fleet right now is I think 300 grounded planes. So, you know, if you multiply it, you know, the charges are adding up and the charges add up by the day. So for Boeing not to take an additional charge in Q3, it was pretty nonsensical to me. But anyway, um, you know, it's it's just the type of thing where they're still not having their come to Jesus moment in terms of telling it as bad as it is. And, you know, I, I've never been an executive in crisis control dealing with the fact that I've killed 346 people on my watch and the fact that, you know, my company has had... $20 billion of revenue evaporate this year based on the fact this play has been grounded. But, um, but it, it's a situation that I, I don't think has fully played out yet. I don't think that the Europeans are going to be so quick to recertify it after how much has come out about the fact that the FAA and Boeing's relationship led to, you know, them not requiring new pilot training, those text messages, you know, there's there's the Boeing employee kind of, you know, sending a winky face and saying, oh, yeah, I got the other people to agree to no training. Like, I'm very persuasive. You know, that, that's not what, what you want to see in a commercial airliner that you expect to deliver 10,000 of and, you know, take billions of passengers on over the next 20 years. So um, it's not only it's over yet, you know, that it, it's just kind of, you know, it's it, it's a moral crusade as much as it is as, as a trade and you know, it's been a decent trade overall. I think theoretically, if you plane shorted on the first time that I brought it up with a little memo, this in my pin tweet, I think Boeing was around 360 back then. I think it's you know 340 today. So you haven't lost money. You might have made a little bit of money. You know, there's been some ups and downs, but um, you know, I think the real trade would be to you know short Boeing and along the S and P 500 over the next five years. And I think Boeing's going to do worse than them because. You know, they're, they're cutting Dreamliner production because of these financial difficulties and because also because of just not enough Dreamliner backlog. You know, the 777X has been delayed because of engine problems, but you know, they, they've, got no, they've got no real silver lining at this point um, other than the fact that it'll eventually get ungrounded and, you know, the stock will pop $30 that day and that's fine. But you know, they're a company that's still valued at something probably like, you know, 15 or 20 times normalized earnings at the point where we're, you know, potentially entering a downward cycle of, you know, car air cargo traffic is down. We've had almost a dozen like European discount uh, airline bankruptcies at this point. So it's, it's not a good time for being an airplane salesperson. And, you know, there's huge backlogs for Boeing and Airbus, but when each time an airline goes bankrupt, that's another, you know, couple dozen planes to go back to the marketplace and get leased and get it put out to somewhere else. So it, it's, you know, to some extent, it's an ethical trade to some extent. It's a macro trade to some extent. It's a valuation trade, which you know, short sellers way smarter, way more experienced than me say never touch that. But you know, it's the type of thing where uh, it's you know, it's event driven. I think there's some meat on the bone, and if I'm wrong, that's fine. But it's been an interesting intellectual pursuit to be able to wade into the waters other than the ones that Elon Musk swims in, and to some extent, there's a little more. 
a little more rationality to some extent there's equivalent irrationality but uh you know it's it's been a good journey and if i'm going to shout out some people for the first time uh like you said ted stein has done some work with me on this i think there's cvc research who has also helped a lot with research i think there is uh i'm going to mispronounce it almington capital or something like that um but there's you know it, it's nice it, I, I, yeah almington capitals uh, but, you know, it's not the Tesla Q network, which is a shame because the Tesla Q network is amazing in terms of getting every aspect of the situation covered by a subject matter expert and knowing everything that was going on is kind of starting from the ground floor and trying to figure out how we figure out these things. Um, but it's been an interesting journey. It's been an intellectual exercise. And, you know, I've, I, I'm not a professional uh, trader or stock market analyst, so it's kind of been personal um you know from scratch exercise for me so you know no regrets so far and we'll, we'll see where this goes and um you know i think the next three or six months are going to clarify the trade in terms of whether the max is further delayed whether we start to get some big cancellations you know southwest for the first time in its history is now exploring buying an airplane other than a boeing 737 and they've been around for 50 years now um you know, their, their, their board is now formally exploring that for the first time. And we're going to get Ryan, Ryanair's earnings, I think next week, or maybe the, the week thereafter. And last earnings call three months, you know, prior into this grounding, once again, I'm going to swear because it's a direct quote, but uh, Ryanair CEO said that, you, that Boeing needs to get their shit together and they haven't got their shit together yet. You know, there's no clear, there's some clarity in the path to certification in the U.S. There's not that much clarity into the path of certification in the EU, which is what matters for Ryan. So, you know, they, I, ex, I expect that he has some strong words. And you know, I expect that on both sides of the aisle, probably there will be more diversification. There was a Bloomberg article that I think I posted today about how budget airlines more typically have a one uh, manufacturer fleet versus most mainline carriers have, you know, kind of 50, 50 aspect. So there's you know, a few people that are all Boeing Southwest Ryan are all Boeing. I think there's another smaller one. There's a few that are all, all Airbus. I think it's, you know, like Vietjet and a couple of international carriers. Um, but I, you know, I think the lesson learned for all parties is probably going to be to diversify, which I guess would be a zero sum game, but you know, Boeing, is going to be in the hot seat for quite some time. In my opinion, the 737 MAX is going to be a zero margin product over its life cycle because of the concessions that they're going to have to offer to customers to maintain orders and to win future orders, especially in the context of the lightning airline market that I uh, addressed before. So it's just it's just a type of thing where, you know, I think their all-time high was 440, but that was kind of on a crazy spike. If you talk about the real all-time high of being like 380 outside of that spike, you know they're they're 20% off their all-time high with what's supposed to be their bread and butter product that's responsible for like a third of revenue and profit, still grounded after seven months. They're gonna have to pay concession, like further concessions on you. They, they booked nine billion dollars of charges so far. The uh, main aviation analysts estimate that it's going to be at least $18 billion when all is said and done. They still have another $10 billion charges to book pretty much. Um, and then, and then, you know, the long-term picture, just how are you going to have confidence in Boeing going forward when you learn 
how shoddily they decided to launch this product. So, so this, this has been like a 10 minute tirade, tirade at this point. So I'll cut it off. And then if you have any more targeted questions, I can return to them. But you know, it, so it, it's not Tesla. Boeing's not going to zero. That, that's where I should wrap up. So not meant to be, not meant to be a competing trade. Boeing is not going to zero. They have, you know, commercial aviation is like 60% of their business. The 737 is like half of that business or, you know, 40% of that business. But, you know, they have a defense business and the U.S. government will never let Boeing, you know, just wither away to nothing. They have a space business. They have an aircraft service business. They're going to be fine. So it's not a matter of they're going to go to zero. They're not going to be restructured. But it's a matter of the fact that they were in $120 stock, you know, four or five years ago. And, you know, the whole market's run up a little bit. But if the max is a zero margin product or a low margin product over, over its entire lifetime, and if they're now cutting 787 production, and if the 777 is problematic, and if they aren't able to introduce a replacement for the 757 and 767, which would be the NMA, which they have, they keep just kind of kicking down the road, you know, th- there's just no real positive forwardling aspect of this. So it's, it's kind of, to some extent, waiting for the entire market to turn type of trade, because, you know, no, as we've discussed, nothing matters in any respect, but, you know, Boeing is not the company that it appeared to be a year ago before this first crash. So, uh, you know, that, that's, that's the thesis. And it's also just really hoping that people get their comeuppance and are uh, held responsible for their bad actions and, you know, hope that companies, you know, marketplace values are held responsible for their bad actions and, you know, the detrimental impact to earnings that has occurred and will continue to occur, though it hasn't mattered so far. So, so I, I think that I think that's probably the starter, the starter, thirty thousand foot view that uh, provides the situation. And if you had any more targeted questions, I'm happy to answer them. I think that's a pretty good summary. Um, just a few things that I'll add. Uh, I think it was last, <clears throat> excuse me. I think it was last Friday, probably the 18th of October. You had, or on Thursday actually you had jokingly said on Twitter that people should buy some, some puts. And then on Friday that news came out about the messages that were sent and apparently not forwarded. And if people had made that trade, they would have done well, but you're not giving advice of course on Twitter. No, no, or, so, or so, yeah, so, so th- oh, yeah. this brings, this, this brings up two separate points. So yeah, I think, I think I touched on that earlier of that was get, getting that right was dumb luck because my thesis was that they would pre-announce something bad during earnings because they did it the previous quarter, which did not happen. And then I got lucky with that news story breaking and some people made money. And, you know, I'd, I'd say based on DMs and ads and stuff, a couple dozen people made money, which makes me feel great. But point number one is that I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not a salesman. I'm not a registered investment advisor. I want zero people to follow me into this trade. So if there's people who, you know, come to their independent conclusion, that's fantastic. You know, if there's people that share news, that's fantastic. I'm, you know, not pitching this as the best idea in the world, that one that's going to make money, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm happy that some people appeared to appear to have decided to roll the dice and uh, do well on that. But so the, the larger point I wanted to make on that, going back to Tesla, which I think I might have mentioned before, um, maybe not. And this is by no means a subtweet at anyone specifically, but is also kind of a subtweet at you know ten or twenty people generally. But you know, if if I was the chairman of Tesla Q, which I'm not, I'm very much a fringe player at this point. You know, my wish would be that people 
better communicated feelings in regards to uh, short-term sentiment. So, you know, anyone in Tesla Q believes that Tesla is, you know, a sham, a zero, whatever, over the long term. But I think coming out of the woodwork, a lot of people were positioned somewhat, you know, with a hedge, even bullishly, whatever, I don't know, to this next, to this past earnings. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, as a person, take full responsibility for the trades that I make. But I also would appreciate kind of knowing just, you know, where other people are at in terms of, I think that this could be a bad quarter, but you never know what's going to go on. So like, this is, you know, a way to, to deal with it. So, you know, I, I know that people don't like talking their book. I know that actually offering advice is a, is a big faux pas or, you know, thing that you can actually get you in trouble. But, um, you know, to some extent, I think it's healthy to talk your book specifically more than just generally in terms of saying, you know, it looks squeezy right now. Let's buy some calls or, you know, I wouldn't be adding to my position right here. So, you know, it, it, it just, it's just tough to say, but, you know, it, this, this reaction is, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's been a tough week for Tesla Q overall. And, you know, in the past I had sort of bought in too thoroughly of, you know, into the all in type of, um, <laughs> mindset. And it's important to realize that, you know, that isn't, you know, if you're a relatively unsophisticated investor, which honestly I am, you know, just despite working in financial markets in some capacity, I'm not an expert trader or anything like that. It's, it's important to kind of get, uh, cued into how other people think of managing risk. So, you know, I, I don't know if it's somebody putting out like a little, you know, trading course template or something like that. But, um, but I think that we collectively could do better in terms of communicating when in the short term, things look bleak, even if, even if over the long term things look as we expect. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think I think it's getting close to time to wrap up, but just back to the topic of the Boeing Boeing situation. I, I think that following Boeing so closely is definitely great just because it has so many different aspects, kind of similar to, to Tesla. And I think that's what has drawn a lot of people to Tesla is just all the different angles that it hits. Not it's not solely financials. Like a bank like following a bank closely would be incredibly boring because it's there's not all the physical aspects of it and things that you can see out in the real world and touch and and the physics and the science and engineering and whatever. But Boeing, I think, does hit on some of those things. So I think I think you made a good choice to to follow it closely. Um, it, it, and it, it just so like, you know, like I said, it, it's not supposed to be a substitute for Tesla Q. It's not supposed to be a parallel to Tesla Q. But it's amazing how many parallels there are to Tesla Q. Like, you know, they've got three or four hundred planes right now sitting in the desert in the Southwest, sitting in Moses Lake, Washington, sitting in Renton. Just, you know, they're the they're Lathrop Lumens for all intents and purposes in terms of they're not ready to be sold right now because the product is defective, basically. And you know, they're I think that they're actually going to have to install some type of additional computer in type of them. Cause I think there was a question about redundancy in the flight computer. Um, and then there was some stuff about the angle of attack sensor, but you know, they, Boeing has, you know, 
singles or tens of billions of dollars of inventory sitting around the country right now, the same way that Tesla did. And it's not a comparable situation, but it's kind of a comparable situation. Um, and, the, and the same, and one more similar similarly, similarity I will highlight is that they have, you know, kind of an upside down balance sheet too. Like they, Boeing has $10 billion of cash, five of which w- was raised last quarter. And they paid out $1 billion of dividends last quarter, even though they, you know, were negative a negative free, cla- free cash flow business. But they have something like 50 or $60 billion of liabilities related to customer deposits. Because when, when you order an airplane, you pay for some of it when you order it, you pay for a lot of it whenever it starts getting billed, and then you pay for some of it when it gets delivered. So they've gotten so many payments up front for all those planes that they've made, which has helped allow them to make them kind of the same way that, or pro, you know, probably even even more so than Tesla's, you know, five thousand dollar deposits allowed them to make cu- customers' cars. But you know, they're, they're way upside down right now. So you know, Boeing is all also has a much stronger financial position than Tesla, and as I mentioned, is you know essentially backed up by the government. So it's not a Q situation, but you know, they have negative shareholder equity at this point. And for you know the best American manufacturing company ever, that's a joke. So it's just the type of thing where. You know, they they're still you know trading as if this is just a little hiccup when in reality it's really shaken up their entire business. So, you know, I'm not I'm not pitching people to get in on this trade. I'm not saying that it's the best trade in the world. There's a lot easier shorts out there, probably in terms of you know, I'm happy to see my bros eating off of Netflix or Roku or you know, PCG or anything there is. So it's, it's like I said, for me, it's as as much a moral crusade an examination of American capitalism gone wrong or just, you know, an American business that lost its way as much of it is a trade, even though, you know, I think it can be a trade too. So uh, I think it's just a fascinating story. And, you know, Tesla one day, there will be many, many books written about it, case studies written about it, whether it fails or succeeds, you know, Boeing will survive this, uh, you know, part of its history and, you know, be in a, be a company for the next hundred years until we die. But there will be things written about it too, just you know, examining the design, launch, marketing of this product, how they dealt with this crisis, how they could have dealt with it better, and you know, eventually what happens afterwards. So it's just been it's just been fascinating to follow, and it's been an intellectual pursuit that uh, has has been a good distraction from you know the crazy shit in the Elon world. Mm-hmm. And I think the lasting thing in in the FinTwit world is going to be the the dot d cash tag nomenclature that we're going to perpetuate and uh, I'm, I'm i'm all about that and i think i i think i took a poll on that and it was the community that determined that that was the right way to go with it so i i can't even claim credit for that but uh it's nice to have some place to connect news with people who are like-minded rather than either mindless longs or you know just the FinTwit, you know, spam accounts that put 20 cash tags on a tweet or whatever. So, mm-hmm. uh, so it's a good, yeah, it's a, it, if, if that's actually something that catches on, that's good. Yep. And I, I will do my part to, to see that it catches on and I will try to credit the, you whether you want the credit or not. So, so l- 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 let me, ask, I know you got to wrap up, but let me ask you a question. So, so other than Tesla, what, what's your favorite, pet trade if you don't mind me asking my favorite pet trade i don't know if i have one right now um recently uh just within the past few months i've i've started to outright short shares rather than just buying puts 
so some of, some of my favorite shorts since I've done that have been Netflix. Took a little Boeing position a couple weeks ago. It's very small now. Uh, Carvana seems to be a, a pretty bad business as far as making money. And their liquidity position, like their actual amount of cash that they have is very, very small. But they have, they reported that they have access to like $700 million of credit or something. And I have no idea what, what will ultimately happen with them. But it seems to me that, that if that $700 million access got cut off, they could they could go from being uh, able to operate to not being able to operate very, very quickly. So Carvana's one, and that, that has been sourced through the Tesla Q community. On the long side, um, I most of my longs have been uh, somewhat baggy and, and high price-to-sales ratio companies that have done very poorly over the past two months so i i don't think i'm going to share any of those right that's now, fine but, uh, yeah i think that, i think that's fine and like like i said i i'm i'm uh all about talking one's book for better or worse but i also respect the fact that uh some things need to be kept close to the cuff so i'm not gonna put your feet on the burner but yeah no i've i've seen similar stuff on carvana um you know i i've pretty much devoted devoted all my mental energy to the Boeing thing at this point, just out of, you know, curiosity, bordering on obsession at this point. So I've kind of only got one horse in this race, uh, whether or not it's financial, it's, you know, the, the thing that I devote energy to. So, but I'm always, I'm always interested to hear other good ideas. And I think that this one that other people have pointed out is kind of just teetering on the edge. And I think that they've got a sketchy management team, which, as I think I said way earlier, you know, management is very important. And that was one of the things that drew me to Tesla originally. And having a bad management team is not something that, well, it's a great thing you want to see if you're short, but it's not something you want to see if you're long. So, um, so I, I wish you well on that. And I think that there's other people who, uh, all are also in on that. So I, I should probably take a close look at that as well. Yeah. And, and I'll just add on rather than a specific company, some of my thought process is to look at, Earnings, gap earnings, as well as cash flows, and how sustainable those are over over time. Whether they're growing, uh, whether they're due to one-off things, like is possibly the case with the third quarter of 2019 for Tesla. Um, but that's that's kind of what I like to look at, and I like to look at uh, the net cash position of a company. Whether they, if they have more cash than than debt on their balance sheet. That's that's a good thing, and there are some companies where that's very much reversed. Like you just mentioned, Boeing has like ten billion of cash and sixty billion of liabilities. Tesla has like thirteen billion of debt, and they reported five point four billion of cash. So they're kind of backwards in that regard as well. Um, and and sometimes being backwards in that regard makes total sense and is and doesn't reflect on the business itself. So uh, any any other reverse interview questions you want to give me before we wrap this thing up i'm trying to think about that so so uh who who are you trying to get next on the podcast let's see if we can make this happen uh well i actually have plans to talk to a couple guys tomorrow night uh relating to the deposition so hopefully that will work out um and then besides that i have three other potential interviews that i'm 
working on. Uh, we'll see if the timing can work out on those as well. But I'm, I'm not going to say who they are. But yeah. but they would think already, all three be pretty good interviews, I think. I think you've already got pretty much all of the goats on. No offense to the people you're going to interview too, but uh, I'm happy to see that this has taken off because it's, it's nice to have a chance to converse freely in more than 160 characters or whatever at a time. So mm-hmm. it's good to uh, be able to share some ideas and ramble on a little bit every once in a while. Yeah. And we got to bring some balance to the force. I mean, on the other side of things, we've got clean Technica, Fred electric, Tesla Roddy and on and on and on. There's now, what? now, you know, that YouTube thing, you got the, the cowboy hat guy on YouTube, which I think he put out a video yesterday about how much money he made this week. And and I started to watch it, and I may watch it at some point, but I think I might lose the food yeah, that I've most dude, recently eaten if I watch that one. So, Well, I, I forgot that I was supposed to be Bull, Bull Elmer on this <laughs> podcast based on uh, the voting. Uh, neutral Elmer is good. Yeah, it was pretty neutral, but... Yeah. But, so, so on that... Well, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll go as long as you want to go, but I'll, I'll give a closing statement on that in terms of, you know, I I welcome any quick end to this. And, you know, to some extent, there's a million things that could end this tomorrow. But to some extent, I'm a believer that the inertia and the political will will, you know, keep this thing going as long as possible. So, you know, at, at this point, once again, not, not trading advice, but... Unfortunately, now that now that we're back up to three thirty, you know, it's a much safer place to get bearish again. But at the same time, I think if you look at a very long term chart, you know, there was support at three hundred, there was support at two eighty or something like that, and now we're kind of back up in the safe zone where it bounces between two ninety and you know three fifty forever, um, and we're gonna have to wait for another downward catalyst. So, you know, I I personally not advice will not be buying you know crash puts on monday morning anticipating this move to give itself back but i welcome you know whether it's articles on the deposition that show the kind of guy that elon is or whether it's you know the department of justice finally deciding to investigate some questionable accounting um you know i'll always have a position in place just in case shit hits the fan but it's the type of thing where this is a longer game than anyone wants to be playing. And if I've learned one thing to this entire lesson, as I think you alluded to before too, you know, I would, if I had to do this all over again, I would put, put it, I would have put on a plain short since day one and then, you know, have been flat versus a little bit less good than flat. Uh, but you know it's it's lessons learned and you know it's the friends made in the process and you know now, now you kind of know what's going on and i think that a year and a half of watching elon watching the company you just get wise to the tricks and you just expect them to some extent so i think that we'll get another three or six months of tricks i think that you know vol- volumes are the main indicator of tesla's business and by now we have a pretty good watch on european and u.s volumes china's a tiny bit of a black box but not that important all things considered so you know by november mid-december we'll kind of know how this quarter is going and i think if volumes are decent then i think it's another quarter you got to be pretty cautious i think if volumes are coming in pretty late you know never discount the 10k fleet sell in the quarter but uh 
you know, that's, that's when things might be weakening up a little bit. So, you know, I, I look forward to competition. I look forward to the story weakening a little bit, but I think in my opinion, now is probably not the time to press just cause you know, Elon's in the Elon zone right now. And you, you gotta, to some extent, respect that for what he can do. So, um, so good luck to all, you know, pour, pour one out for the people that took L's this past week, you know, big ups to the people that took some wins this past week. I was essentially neither, neither of those parties, but, uh, you know, just, you know, I think trade carefully is something that gets tossed on Twitter, but I think it's worth saying in person or over microphone, not in person, but, um, you know, lasting until the end of this is, uh, more important than being a hero in the meantime. So I, I look forward to sticking around and observing and helping to forward this story for quite a long time. But I think it might be quite a long time unless anything dramatic happens anytime soon. Mm-hmm. I agree, and we and we now have that downside gap to. Well, yeah. So to look forward to, or to I, I think we mostly by. I think we filled the upside gap to like three. I think that the gap upside might be till 340 or something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, so we gotta, little... may have to fill that, but then we have the whatever yeah, that... 255 to to 300 or, or thereabouts. Yeah, that'll, that'll be beautiful at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. I think it will be. Well, Elmer, thanks for joining. Uh, this has been episode number 49 of the Tesla Q podcast, um, unless it's 49 and 50 if I split it into two, which I don't think I'll do. Um, but I appreciate everybody listening. And if you want to be a contributor, go to patreon.com slash podcast and become a contributor. And I'm going to stop the recording now. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. See you, my man.